chivalry is enforced by the social order. It's enforced by, it's a code essentially, right? So it's a propositional description of how one should behave. And those, that code might not be accurate in terms of the um, categorization of these things, these chivalric virtues, for instance, right? For instance, bleaker wrote necessity. So the difference between that and chivalry, that's revealed quite well by the Battle of Maldon. And I'll tell you the story of it, right? So it begins with Vikings have come to invade the city. He has his army at this river. They come and ask for all the gold in the city. He and the old English say, get wrecked. We don't want, that's not happening. It's in the translator then, right, to say with the, with the great leader, to say, well, that's not fair. Like, we're not on fair footing, right? Because think of it like a triangle, like the hot gates. It's like the hot gates in 300. A small pass, Persian army on the outside, and you've got the old English on the other side, right? The Vikings coming into a, right? So he appeals to his fair, like, oh, this isn't fair, this battle. What happens is this leader, this old English leader, says and lets them across, right? But it's about his pride rather than, even if it's about the value of fairness, they're appealing to his, like, how he'll be considered. The reason he does it is, like, vainglory. How will I be considered in the sagas for this? So he's enforced by that rather than his underlying moral impulsions. He does it because of that consideration that's the idea so that's chivalry on one side you could say is that reaction the first one is a mistake right it's kind of like the first behavior that he displays that you can see as the opposite to sort of bleak heroic necessity which happens later so and in the story the vikings come across it's a savage battle and it's it's oh like because of this decision the old english lose and that's all surrounded and then you see the bleak heroic necessity right a few guys go to run one of the shouldermen of the lord says, um, ah, all the things you said in the meat hall, all the boasts, what did they mean? Were they all just for show or were they something real? Then he says that famous quote that I've talked about before, which is, uh, may our hearts grow stronger, our spirit the greater with our diminishing might, right? As the more and more of them are being killed, the more savage they are in their fighting. And that's bleak heroic necessity because one guy goes to run, one person runs and some others turn and see him doing it. And they think about, okay, well, is that what everyone's doing? The ones that do run and don't stay, the two people who survive or whatever, the ones that run, they would always have run. doesn't matter what you said to them, right? Because they clearly don't have that impulsion. But the ones who stay do. And that's reinforced by the, by the restatement of the value itself in let our hearts go greater with our diminishing might. The moments that you're not being watched or there's nothing to gain from it, from reputation, from anything like that. What are your impulsions, right? So chivalry points to, maybe points to things that are moral impulsions. You might also compare this, like think about Game of Thrones. There's chivalric things going on, like the knights, when you see the jousting that happens in the knights of people, oh, I'll do this great thing for you and defeat this guy, right? It's all pretense. It might achieve some objective, this pretense, and the fighting, but it's not for that. It's not a moral impulsion from within. Now cut to Ned Stark, right? He represents someone that has the right practices that from him emerge. Also, he's enriched deeply in, in the culture that actually has these, he's closer to nature, closer to the cold, closer to the borderland, right? Of realness, of real life. Whereas these people that are sort of in this walled city in the nice summer, they don't have perspectival understanding, the participatory understanding, the 
habituation of practices and behaviors that embody it. And when you have a child, it embodies it in them. Like, uh, so Ned came into a world imbued with the normative elements, the moral elements around you. And that's in the cultivated land and the culture. That happens very quickly, right? The first things a baby sees, let's call it the first normativity, the first va the values the baby has is like, oh, that's a snake run. Oh, that's heights, right? Babies, when they know implicitly to stay away from heights, even when they've learned nothing, right? Because they're sort of biological elements, right? Beyond that, the next steps are sort of culturally absorbed with the things, very things that are around you. In the language, the language is value-laden. The landscape's even value-laden. It's cultivated. Say if you live in the English countryside, right? You take it out of that. If you take Ned Stark out of, um, out of that, he'll still get it from absorbing it from his parents, right? But yes, you have things that are in the north, let's say, that gives them a moral impulsions that chivalry are describing and sometimes enforcing in the weak southerners in this city, these weak southern fairies in this King's Landing, do it for other reasons, if they do it at all. And in private, don't do it. But the practices where they're still alive in the North, so you see with Ned Stark, he, you can see naturally in him, he does things because he's impelled to do it. It's a moral impulsion from within rather than an enforcement from top like you see in these exercises of, oh, I'll be brave and fight someone at a joust. Nobility comes from within. It doesn't come from without. You can have a propositional description of it, as with chivalry, but its actual function, and Tolkien talks about this, is that's the taint, really. That's the tainted element in the social enforcement that it's for about, it's for your position. You're doing it for your position. What we're after is the moral impulsions, right? And now we, you might want to think about and look to Aristotle here. He talked about what the word is that Aristotle talked about is acrasia. So what this is, is when you know the right thing to do. So you know chivalry. You've read the books about chivalry. I should be courageous here. I should be this here. I should do that. I should not steal that. You know the right thing to do, but you can't help yourself, your urge or whatever it is, and you, but you do the wrong thing anyway. That's a crazy. It's like foolishness. You know the propositional element, right? Or you might even know the practice that you, you do, but you have the inappropriate significance attached to it, the inappropriate value to impel you to do the right thing. I just think about chocolate cake, for instance, is that I know I shouldn't eat the chocolate cake. I know I shouldn't eat the chocolate cake. You eat the chocolate cake anyway, right? That's a small example of a crazy. But what we want is not to have to use our will, and that will work sometimes. You, Use whatever energy you have to stop yourself from doing it. What we want is a situation where we have the character, as Aristotle describes, the virtue engine, the virtual engine, virtual, think virtual engine, the inhabited practices to build character. It's what character is, right? It's your inhabited practices. And don't think about this like propositions. Think about this like the small practices, the small practices that you do every day, every week, it's not achieved, it's not a what, it's not grabbed, it's, a it's the endless process, it's the way. The ways, the practices you do every day, every week, on, a, on those regular basis, every month, whatever those practices might be, that catalyze the virtues themselves, right? So when you think virtual engine, you can think of things, okay, what are the small practices that I could build up, I could do every day that would make me more courageous? Well, a smaller courageous thing, right? The tiny courageous thing. That's a practice. You write it down. I practice doing this. I practiced doing something that 
I'm scared of, right? Let's say, for instance, and you do that over and over and over again, and it builds up to a courageous person. There's two differences between things here, though, right? You have an implicit process where you are inculcated into a culture, inculcated into, assimilating, assimilating, assuming the culture, right? Assimilating it. As you are, if you're born into it, or if you really do a lot of effort when you come to a new country and really become part of all its traditions, right? That's what tradition is, the practices, what's going on, the things you do, the, the community cell of everything that you participate in. If you do that, that could be very well be implicit. There's no description of what it is, but they're just the practices that nat naturally are passed down from father to son, mother to daughter, and are imbued by the naturally out of the value-laden language, out of the very place you live, the cultivated land and its shape and the values, the valued behaviors that are represented in all that, that you have more impulsions naturally based on that society, have the impulsion and still perhaps do the wrong thing, right? But usually when it's the highest order one, like should always fight tyranny, we really dislike a tyrant and it impels us forward. But there's all other ones in the hierarchy, right? Where you might not always act that way when it's needed. You might not take the courage. So it's there, you feel the feeling, but it takes the practices around it. Or what my grandfather did and that made him like that. And that came from the culture. I should do the same thing. I should put myself in the same uh, arena space, put my, as an agent, put myself in that arena, habit them myself, and that will give, allow me to meet my potential in this culture. And as I said before, the way of the culture, the way of the, is in the chief ideas or the chief idos, the chief, not the idea propositional in the head, but the chief ways of the culture. Now your choice here becomes, do I cultivate those? Do I find out what they are or do I just let it run? Like how much time do you spend working on yourself so your moral impulsions are strong? We don't a lot. We don't even look at, we don't think we, that's what, we have so many people presenting that English people or the English speaking people are nothing, that we aren't something, that we aren't, we're just these libertarian selves. Well, wrong. We are something. There's a massive tradition there. So you look at the knight, right? In, the quality of a noble knight is someone that has is has a gentleness, right? Gentleness like a seems like a weak word, but just think about like the idea of the gentleman, right? Is that he's a man of both flesh and steel, not just a brute, right? He's not just a, a warlord that just kills people. Like if you think about Achilles, right? It's like taking slaves, taking like victory over people just to execute them later, right? So you're having a war, fighting them, they beg for quarter. And then he's just killing them for fun after, right? He's a savage, savages, man. But when you look at this, the idea of the knight is like having this other side to you. It's not weak, right? That's just the mistakes of people that have written about it or the propositions, right? The propositions are proper descriptions of it. It's the guy that cultivates both sides of his estate, the estate of war and the estate of the social cultural world because he needs to negotiate through that world as well, right? He knows, he knows the proper humble manners, not just as a surface thing. So it, it's authentic. It comes from within. It enacts the practices that make him uh, humble. The utility benefit of that is that people are more open to him. People flock to the cause. Some people might say, oh, you shouldn't be the hero either. You shouldn't really take the risk. Yeah, well, okay. Not taking a risk constitutes taking a risk. You'll spend the life in your basement as an anonymous person. No one will flock to your banner. 
You'll have some people that are also in their basement that might uh, grumble with you or, or watch whatever you have to say, but you're not participating in the country or the wider conversation. And, well, you may get sniped out, but why? Well, okay, you just need to be more prudent then. You need to have the practices in place that make you resilient. But if you had put these virtues into place and acted them, you'd have the right moral impulsion. You'd have all the other skills. You'd be prepared. Also, people would flock to you. So you'd have the resources to protect yourself from attacks, for instance, right? Because hiding in your basement does nothing. Hiding in your basement is a bad idea for your own future. Well, okay, think about that value, bleak heroic necessity. Some people might look at that and say, oh, how stupid were they? All the individuals there, they did this thing that they could have just been like the scavenger who lets other people do that and they survive and their genealogy survives. No, if you do it as a community, what ends up happening is you all do better. You're all better off. You are more likely to succeed. You're more dogged until the end, right? Think about the Blitz, the, the Dunkirk spirit. If you've got a Dunkirk spirit on the local in your group, right, you'll all be pulled up together and you'll, you'll be so much more resilient than other people who all as individuals have this value of the skulking scavenger who goes, I'll let the other people be the hero. You know, this sort of, oh, do nothing, take the clear pearl. Okay, well, if you reinforce that value, people won't be loyal to you. And on the local level, you'll be less likely to succeed. A rising tide lifts all boats. You have the practices that are connected to this value. If you do the things that imbue you with it, and you recruit people around you that are imbued with it, you'll be far more successful than those people, the scavengers, that try group together. And then at the first sign of trouble, right? That's the benefit. If you think about the evolutionary benefit, people who act like that, that believe that are thinking small-mindedly, they think they're not, doesn't just apply on a national scale. It applies on a local scale as well. In the groups you form, in the way it's imbued, and the people you surround yourself with, say, on a business, right? Every startup is a conspiracy. The people you bring in with you need to be those types of people, and they will always beat up the other types. So what you want is to actually cultivate these things. Cultivate them with your practices. Make them even stronger so you do respond with bleak heroic necessity. So you do respond with the powerful um, cultural response, the powerful impulsion to do the right thing and you'll find that you will, that will generate success. Like you think that, oh no, it won't. I need to be just a money grubbing, you know, just a money grubbing scab that's just always screwing people over. And that's the way to success. Maybe you'll get away with it for a while, maybe. But if you cultivate this virtue engine with the things that are virtues in our tradition, the values of this culture, and you'll have greater success because the people around you will notice it and be impelled towards you. Like the being will get you the having, but having the having mindset, the having mode, this mode of um, basically think about the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I need food. I need shelter. They are possession things, consumption things. You're going to have a lot of trouble if you're only driven by that in the metasphere above those basic needs. You're trying to achieve this and that because you'll get that goal, right? And then it's just empty and you're not driven anymore to it because you've achieved it. But if you cultivate the way of being the practices that lead to the things you want as a goal, but they just become practices that are natural as part of your life that will achieve that. Like that's a continuance, that's a continuity, that's a way 
and keep try to keep putting yourself in that being mode. Like, what's the way of being? What are the breaking down the being way? Then you'll be imbued with the impulsion to which will naturally get you towards the things you want to be. So, in conclusion, I would say that the problem we're talking about here is the mischaracterization of these things, the obsession with the propositional element of it, misunderstanding of the actual benefits of the moral impulsions the chivalry might actually describe in its inaccurate way, but also the confusion between the enforced version from the Middle Ages that you see in Game of Thrones and the practices. Like what is really generated? Like how do you generate it? Like, ah, you have all these propositions in your head that say, oh, I need to act this way, and you're constantly beating yourself up, but you can't get yourself to do it, right? And the confusion between those things leads us to believe that, oh, we can't, we can't do the things we did anymore. We can't be the people we were. Well, not with a propositional mindset, well, not with a having mindset, but with the recognition that it's about the practices. It's the virtue engine that builds it up. And then the impulsions come naturally. If you have the right character built, the character built, the virtue engine in place, with the right practices, though, investigating the implicit heritage, implicit practices that are nested in the tradition, in the heritage that generated them before, rather than the chivalry descriptions. Yes, they worked, but they were enforced by the wider society. They were enforced by the ego. They were enforced by the desire to have. It's not driven by the impulsion, and therefore, without that, it just crumbles, right? And you see that. You have, without the enforced element, that's what's happening now. It's those two things, and that's the problem, is that you have them together um, as a description of the thing that re it really is that's informed by practices and was in the past, most of the time, unbeknownst to us, driven by the cosmology, driven by uh, a whole host of um, quaint things we used to do just because we did them. We didn't know how crucial they were. And then you have this description where people talk about, just like people when they look at English literature, or what's the literal meaning of it? It doesn't, it's useless to people if it's framed in that way, and that you're trying to break out of your frame. You're looking at it as a metaphor to break out of your frame. You say, what did the author literally mean by this? Like, it's such a, you have to participate in it. A ways to solving that problem is to draw the difference, is to draw the distinction between those two things. And this is in a more connecting it with psychological principles, cognitive science, and with some philosophy. So you understand, ah, that's the difference. That's the difference. If I investigate this, I can actually cultivate this in myself. I can bring it forward. I can make it part of my being, part of the grounding underneath me that impels me to act in a way that puts me in continuity with my culture and continuity with the people around me in the way that leads to success in this culture, in the land and the constraints and the conditions of the... Thanks for watching. Again, I hope it gives you perhaps some ideas to think about how you might um, cultivate it in yourself. And as towards, that's part of this project, this Greenwood, the Greenwood project that is open source that everyone can participate in. So go on the locals, um, be a part of it, of uh, practices that we're uncovering here or, or the things I'm talking about or amongst yourselves in that walled garden, that space to do so towards your, hopefully, your destiny and prospering and forming your own aspiration in context with this.